Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Hey friends, I wanted to hop on today and talk a little bit about when your loved one is resisting care, otherwise known as challenging behaviors. <laughs> Sometimes I think about that term itself, and that can be a term that some folks use a lot, some people don't as far as challenging, but what I often like to ask is, well, who is, who is the behavior challenging for? Is it challenging for the person experiencing dementia, or is it challenging for the family members or caregivers, whether that's family caregivers or professional caregivers? But anyways, I thought it would be fun to do a little bit of a deep dive and explore. I always enjoy like looking at the bigger picture and, and examining more than just the surface of what's going on. So the first thing that I want to address is thinking about the importance of knowing the diagnosis. So we've kind of talked about this in the past too, that dementia in and of itself is more of a broad description about medical condition that, that folks experience having to do with impairment of the brain. And, and so sometimes people are not able to find to get to the root and find out exactly what type of dementia someone has. It can be really helpful, as you can imagine, to know what type of dementia someone has or is ex experiencing. There are so many different types of dementias out there, and they all have their own characteristics and people will experience different symptoms and, and caregivers will notice different qualities. And it's also important to know that people can experience or can have more than one type of dementia as well. So in one of our other episodes, I interviewed Dr. Angelo Domingo. It was one of my favorite episodes. He's, he's so fantastic. I wish I could grab him more, but he's, he's moved on to bigger and better things. <laughs> but he did a really great job kind of breaking down some of the more common types of dementias. And I will say this, that there are many occasions in which it just isn't worth the, the trouble or the hardship really of trying to get to the, to the bottom of what type of dementia someone has. And that's, that's often for folks that maybe their loved one is much older or they have a condition in which it's really hard to go through the testing and the imaging and, and all of that. So it really, I, I want to say, while it's always kind of the, the best idea to know what type of dementia someone has, there are certainly situations in which that's difficult to, to find out. So moving along, uh, I like to think about again, what is a challenging behavior anyways? What, what does that even mean? Well, all behavior is communication. Uh, when you really stop to think about it, 
So if you pause and reflect on the different ways that people communicate in general, and then you think about maybe some of the more positive ways that that folks communicate or the more negative ways that people communicate. But I think the most important thing is to pay attention to what is being communicated through the behavior. So is someone communicating pain or are they communicating loneliness or boredom? Boredom is often a huge indicator. Uh, One of the things that we look at really closely when individuals present with challenging behaviors is, is we're looking at what is the level of stimulation that's occurring in their life? Or are they experiencing anxiety or fear? Sometimes challenging behaviors, what's being communicated is curiosity. Sometimes folks are getting into things and tearing things apart. And, you know, I had a client years ago that was a clock collector he collected these gorgeous, beautiful antique clocks, and his garage was filled with these amazing clocks. And as his dementia progressed, he began taking these clocks apart. And he was used to fixing clocks and tinkering with them. But oh my gosh, his poor wife, in his curiosity to do what he had done in the past, it, it did create a, a quote, challenging behavior. It, it wasn't a challenge to him but it definitely was a challenge for her because she had a garage filled with buckets and buckets of antique clock parts. (laughs) So sometimes a challenging behavior, again, is based out of curiosity and is more of a challenge to the family members than it is to the person who's experiencing dementia. Other forms of, when, when you think about communication in general, think about, again, all behavior. So how do we communicate love or happiness or, or anxiety or fear? So it's important, I think, to just kind of reframe that in, a, in the aspect of what are some positive behaviors that can be communicated, such as laughter, clapping, hugs, and what are some negative behaviors that can be communicated, like cursing or frowning and scowling or throwing things the other thing that that's important that we think about too is, is that it's often a reflection. When we talk about challenging behaviors, challenging behaviors are often a reflection of someone's needs or desires not being met. So it's really important to reflect on that as well. And then the second caveat there is that there's often an inability to communicate needs or desires. So if you couldn't talk or articulate your thoughts or feelings or weren't even, didn't even have the insight or the ability to recognize, but there is confusion and a a felt sense experience, how would you communicate that? How would you communicate your pain or boredom or loneliness? So I like to just start off with that, just kind of reframing this whole idea of challenging behaviors and what that might mean to to some folks. Now, why is this important? Well, I know that's kind of obvious, (laughs) but really what I think of uh, when I think of the importance of it, I'm looking at quality of life, the quality of life, not only for the person who has dementia, but also quality of life for their family members and their care providers. 
the people, the friends and family they're involved with. It's also important because communication and connection are key, right? That's, that is an innate human desire is to have connection with others. And so I think that it's really paramount that we address behavior again as communication. So when we look also at when we're assessing for the reasons behind the behavior, I think that's very important. What we also want to look for is a sudden change in condition. It's especially important when things have been going along just fine, or maybe things haven't been going along just fine, but you notice a really drastic change in condition. That's, that is very telling, right? That's gonna, there's a whole story behind that. So it might mean that again, suddenly there might be an infection going on. And as many of you probably know, UTIs can be very common in older adults and UTIs can be common with folks who have uh, memory impairment. And so it's very important to pay attention to the possibility that the change in condition or increased behavior might be caused by a urinary tract infection or another type of infection in the body. That is one of the first things that we often check for when we see that a change in condition in someone. Another reason might be someone's mood. So we're always looking at depression. You know, how is depression or anxiety playing into what's happening when someone is expressing themselves through certain behaviors? Another thing on the list that I have here is medication. If there has been a a recent change in medication, somebody might be having an adverse reaction to that. So some adverse reactions are really are more physical and some are more psychological. And you as the person that knows your loved one best are going to see that likely before anyone else. And so really paying attention, obviously, to any of those changes in condition and having your eye on the possibility that this might be related to an infection or depression or a change in medication, then there's also pain or dehydration or sleep or nutrition. So these are all kind of little pieces to, to kind of hold out in your, in your mind when you are thinking about what's going on with your loved one. So who or what is being challenged? <laughs> this is kind of what I alluded to in the beginning. I think about how the caregiver or the care partner is being impacted. And I also, of course, we think about the person with dementia is being impacted. And so when a care provider or a family caregiver or care partner is being impacted, we usually see this when the behaviors of the client are challenging to the person that is there providing support. And it can be a huge challenge because you're the person that's responsible for their health and safety. And, and when you're seeing that it's impacting the person that you love, you, you carry that burden and, and that can add a whole nother level of stress to your role. 
And then there's this crazy cycle that can occur, right? You feel responsible. You, you may already be at your limit with responsibilities. And then your loved one is sensing your increased stress, which then adds to the, the whole crazy cycle of these behaviors that might be occurring. So it's imperative, and I know this is way easier for me to say this <laughs> than to actually practice it, but it's imperative to pay attention to what's going on with yourself internally. You know, what are your innate reactions when your loved one is presenting with some challenging behaviors that come up? And how have you typically responded to those challenges? How historically has your loved one responded to your reaction to those challenges? So just getting a, starting to think about that, I think can be really helpful. And then we think about the person with dementia who is experiencing the challenge in a way. I mean, we use, I'm, I'm using the word suffering very broad here in the sense of folks may be suffering in their inability to express their experience or not be able to communicate their discomfort. And so the behavior that they're showing is actually more of a natural response to an event or a need. So their experience can lead to a behavior. So those are two different things, the behavior and the experience. And so it's important, again, to kind of separate those two pieces out, I think. and then. There are also challenges that come with finding a solution or problem solving. So we find big challenges when we're just trying to solve the problem. It can be hard to figure out what's being communicated and what someone's needs are, especially when the person with dementia and the family member or caregiver are in high states of stress. So what we know about stress is that we can't solve problems from a stress state. I mean, that's kind of goes back to human physiology when, when we talk about the brain and how the brain is wired. So our brains are programmed through evolution <laughs> to see the problem. That's part of our survival um, skills. That's part of our evolution. So we we see the saber-toothed tiger coming at us. We ignore the beautiful sunset in the background that, that might be behind the tiger. But we do this very well as human beings. We are, again, programmed to see the problem. So I think the, the other piece here is to pay attention to what your triggers are. So when we know what our triggers are, our brain's as well as our brains work on focusing on the problem, it's going to help us stay more in the state of mind that um, is a, a better state of problem solving. So when we can pay attention to what our triggers are, so think about that. Think about what are the things that drive you the most crazy? Is it always the same thing? Is it the same time of day? Is it when you haven't eaten or slept or had a break. Those are important pieces to just bring insight to your own personal human experience. And then also, I want to call out the importance of tapping into creativity. 
So we, we cannot tap into that state of creativity when we're in a stress state. So we're in that fight or flight state. We're not able to think from a creative space that's going to give us answers and that's going to help us calm and feel non-threatened in, in a way that's going to help us find solutions. So there's a saying, well, who was it? I don't have the, the it's probably some amazing philosopher, <laughs> but uh, and I'm probably butchering this too, but basically there's a saying that you will find what you seek. So what you look for, you're going to find. What you put your attention on is what you're going to see. So when you look for the problem, you're always going to find it. It's kind of like when you buy the fancy red car and then suddenly you see everywhere you look, there's this fancy red car that other people own. When you're looking for it, you're going to see it. You're going to find it. So the important thing there is how do we shift our thinking instead of looking for the problem? How do we shift that thinking to looking for the solution? How do we go from what is causing the stress and to what is going to alleviate the stress? And it can be a very subtle shift, but I encourage you to move in that direction. You know, feed yourself in a way that's going to make life more pleasant and make your experience a little easier. Well, here's, here's another piece there. If, if you focus on what you want to see and start looking for that, like look for what is working, remind yourself every day, whether you make that part of your ritual, when you first wake up in the morning, or when you first go to bed at night, or when you journal about it, decide what you want to see and start looking for it or, or start making notes or paying attention to what is working well. That's going to, you know, just a little shift like that can make such a huge difference. So there's, there's such power in language too. be aware of your words, how we speak can mean a lot. The words that we use are so powerful, whether they're the words in our mind that we're thinking to ourselves or the words that we're saying out loud, how we think about the person we're caring for, how we frame challenges that can come up how we frame the situation. For example, we might say, oh gosh, and I've, I've really worked on this for myself. I used to say, I have to do these things. I have to go to work. I have to get this done or that done. And I've really challenged myself to reframing that to, I, I get to do these things. I get to go to work today. I get to do these projects. <laughs> or my loved one is being difficult. Instead of saying, oh, it's the behavior that's challenging can be really important. So just paying attention to how we use our language, I, I think would be helpful. And then reframing, what is a challenge? A challenge is something to overcome. It's something to learn more about. It's something that can be satisfying as we dig deeper and find solutions and creative ways of approaching. So again, Paying attention to how we even think about challenges is, is going to be really important for us. So let's talk about, I think this is a kind of a, a fun little way to reframe challenges. I kind of divide these challenges into three different categories in my mind. I think about minimal, those challenges that might be minimal safety risk, 
those that might be a medium safety risk and those that might be high safety risk. And so an example of a minimal safety risk might be something like, gosh, I had clients, a few actually, that would consistently put the dishes away while they were still dirty or put them away wrong or load the dishwasher wrong or use the laundry machine wrong. I had one sweet lady love doing laundry and she must have done a load of towels probably six times a day. (laughs) And it was frustrating for the family, of course, having to put the dirty dishes back in the dishwasher or go through, you know, get a high water bill because these towels are being washed over and over and over. Or another, another client would use tons and tons of toilet paper. And so you can see those are challenges. Absolutely. And we're reframing. They're, they're really minimal risks. They're, they're not necessarily a challenge to the person with dementia. They're more of a challenge for the caregivers to have to come up, up you know, behind them and clean things up and put things away appropriately. But they're not necessarily putting folks at, at a big level of risk there. So what would some medium safety risk behaviors include? Those Those are behaviors that I might think of like, oh, maybe hoarding, you know, folks sometimes will hoard items, whether it's papers or it's food or pretty little random objects. And so depending on what those, those things that are being collected are and how much is being collected, that might present a more of a medium security risk in trip hazards or rotting food that you happen to find in a drawer somewhere. Uh, Another one might be disrobing. Sometimes folks are taking off all their clothes in public or another medium security kind of medium risk behavior might be swearing, using profanity and kind of amping up the anxiety of whoever happens to be in the area. And then the more higher risk behaviors might include things like refusing medication, which can definitely have an impact on on an individual, of course, whether that's heart medication or blood pressure medication or one of the psychotropics that is helping an individual stay more calm or might be addressing their anxiety or their mood, driving would fall under that category, wandering away or getting aggressive. All of those things might fall under that kind of area of, okay, this is more of a high risk behavior that's occurring. And we need to take this way more seriously than we might take a behavior that is more of a minimal risk. So that's just kind of a two ways that I think of challenging behaviors. One is who is the behavior challenging to The other is what are the risk levels uh, associated with these behaviors? But I'll hop on on another episode and we'll talk maybe a little bit more about getting creative about like learning about someone's history or knowing their triggers or different approach strategies. But I think this is enough information for now. I just want to thank everyone so much for listening to this podcast and 
contributing. I love, love hearing your comments and your feedback about the podcast. You please feel free to email me anytime. My email is info at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. And of course, you can go on and leave a comment on any of the podcast platforms that you'd like. But I, I always take your suggestions and ideas. And we've had some really fabulous guests. I've got a, a, some really great folks coming up that are scheduled for in the next few weeks. I'm excited about. So again, thank you so much. And I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of your day. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.